And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. For the eyes of the world now look into space, to the moon and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, and one we intend to win. On September 12, 1962, President JFK stood before the American public, scientists, and leaders in space science to give his resounding show of support for America's trip to the moon. Fifty years later, we've indeed gone where no man has gone before, and then some. With great capabilities, though, come great concern about the threats to our safety and our humanity. President Trump announced a new military branch called Space Force, if you haven't heard. And on this episode of What in the World, we learn about the basics of space security, what Space Force is all about, and if it's actually really all that necessary. Stay tuned for more. You have tuned into WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinisotu, and this is What in the World. Uh, it's that time again where we're here to, talk, to learn about what's going on in the world and why it all matters. There's been a lot of stuff happening every single day. But today, I have a special treat for our listeners. Um, we are going to space not like physically, but mentally, we are going to space. If you're like me, you probably rolled your eyes very hard uh, when the president announced the establishment of Space Force back in February. And immediately what came to mind for me was the film The Fifth Element. (laughs) And uh, Diva Pavalaguna's opera scene is like one of my favorite scenes ever in movie history, which has nothing to do with Space Force. But that's what came to mind when I read that we're we're potentially building a Space Force. Um, But I rolled, I really rolled my eyes because I thought, you know, what could we possibly need a space military for when we haven't found aliens to fight? But thankfully, uh, my mind has been opened a little bit. And in researching for this show, I had a chance to learn more about the nuances of space and space security. There are day-to-day benefits that we experience as human beings when it comes to space and space technology. Some just things that we just don't even realize. And we're so fortunate to have two guests who are going to break down space force space security and space for humankind and why it benefits our our lives. Um, So our two guests are from uh, Secure World Foundation. Our first is Victoria Sampson. Uh, Victoria Sampson is the Washington Office Director for Secure World Foundation and has 20 years, it's a long time, Victoria, (laughs) 20 years of experience in military space and security issues. She's known throughout the space and security arena as a thought leader on policy and budgetary issues. She has expertise in missile defense, 
nuclear reductions and speaks to the public quite a bit about all of these topics. And and I trust she's going to be able to break down some of the concepts because she's so used to probably people who don't know anything about (laughs) about these about these issues. You can read many of her articles on the Secure um, World Foundation website. Our second guest is Crystal Wilson, and she is the director of space application programs at Secure World as well. And she has over 10 years of international and domestic space, public policy and management experience. What I liked about your background, Crystal, um, is that you've worked on the business or commercial side. And I think that we often forget that there's, you know, there's government, but we forget that there's a whole slew of contractors and businesses who work in space and aeronautics and all of these interesting and fun things. Uh, She's also worked at NASA and led the production of the agency's budgets and annual reports and performance evaluations and all those things. So you can tell us how NASA's doing. (laughs) (laughs) they're continuing to chug along they did not end when the shuttle this is true this is true ladies thank you so much for for joining me and for sharing your knowledge thank you for having us so what we do for every show is we try to get a sense of who our guests are uh, because i truly believe like foreign policy we talk about these issues and we forget that there are human beings who have stories who have thoughts and feelings and amazing experiences um, that lead them to where they are so i'll start with victoria why space security issues like how did you what sort of has motivated you or sort of guided you to this space I'm a bit of an anomaly in the space policy community. Um, I have a tremendous number of colleagues who've been to space camp. I have a lot of colleagues who, Crystal's raising her hand right now. Um, I have a lot of colleagues who, from the very beginning, you know, that they can remember, they always wanted to go into space. Um, A lot of colleagues who are true believers, space enthusiasts. (laughs) I'm not. I mean, space is good. Probably not the message I want to be sent out. Space is very helpful and beneficial. Um, But for me, the interest comes in from the security and stability aspects. I think space plays a huge role in terms of determining, you know, how our economy functions, how our military functions, how we deal with international relations. So it's part and parcel of a larger discussion. And my background is in military and security issues. Actually, my degree is in international relations. I always joke, I'm not a real scientist. I'm a political scientist. Um, So that's where my background goes. But um, I mean, like any American, I grew up with a space program. My dad was an aerospace engineer. And I do remember him waking us up to see shuttle launches a little. (laughs) And as always, there'd be a delay. You know, you got up at 5 a.m. and you're waiting, waiting, waiting as a kid. That's tremendous. And then also, of course, um, I was in elementary school in 1986 from the Challenger explosion. And as an elementary school kid, yeah, that was a big deal because there was an elementary school teacher on that. And we all were watching it live because it was supposed yeah. to be very exciting. So, I mean, I, I do have, I think, space interwoven in my memories, um, but that is kind of where I went. Um, I happened to end up in space, didn't necessarily drive. But as I always tell people, you never know where your career path is going to take you. Yeah. And I've been working with Secure World Foundation for 10 years now. I love it. I think it's a fascinating um, issue area. So really happy to be here to discuss it. Awesome. Thank you. So you have it in your blood. It sounds like your father is in this space. So you're not like some of our guests who their parents are like, I don't really know what my kid does oh your dad gets what you do <laughs> no my, my parents had no idea what it is that I do they don't quite get the whole 
DC policy organization, think tank sort of thing. Um, zero idea, but they are aware of the idea. They were idea uh, aware of the idea of space. Okay, so, got it. Yeah. All right, Crystal, what about you? You have an interesting background because you didn't start in the space world, but tell us just a little bit about how you got here and just what motivates you to sort of stay connected to this to this issues. Yeah, I was sort of the opposite. I was a space geek as a kid. I did go to space camp. I collected stuff. I watched it all. I really liked space and I really liked international stuff. And at 17, I thought I had to pick between the two. And I was aware that I wasn't going to be a scientist and thought my chances of being an astronaut uh, were relatively (laughs) slim. I was was aware enough to realize that I probably wasn't going to get picked for that. And so I pursued international policy and international politics and uh, studied that at Georgetown, went into international development, really loved it, worked um, around the globe um, on humanitarian and international development projects. But I always loved space. You yeah. know, I followed it. It was, it was exciting to me. And after a while, I realized, you know, maybe I could take the two things that I do and put them back together mm. and, and really look at policy yeah. and space, which are the two things that really have always driven me. And so I was... Uh, privileged enough to return to D.C. and worked at NASA as a contractor. Um, you know, we were able to bring program management skills to, to that job and really then expand my knowledge of space from from an outsider and an enthusiast to mm. someone who's now been working on it for a number of years. So for me, the kind of place that we are now where we're really seeing this expansion of how space influences daily life and how it can be used by government, by business, by international development actors, it's really exciting for me. I feel like both of my interests have, have kind of come full circle. Yeah. And are, are the both of you from D.C.? Oh, no. No. No, no. no I'm from the Midwest, but I went to college here. So I, I okay. consider so myself can, a D.C. So native at this point. At this, you've paid enough taxes. Yes. I you are. Oh. <laughs> well, if that's the case. Um, no, um, I grew up in L.A. Okay. And I um, went to undergrad in L.A., but I, I came to grad school in D.C. And I've lived okay. in D.C. for the past 22 years now. Oh, okay. my God. Um, so, I yeah, I feel I think, like I'm a D.C. Yes. Yeah, resident. And I yeah. feel very strongly about the District of Columbia. I have a daughter. We live here in D.C. She goes to public schools. Go D.C. All right. Go D.C. Yes. So we have a quiz. Uh-oh. It's really simple, though. Oh, I, I no. think you got, yeah, don't worry about it. it. It's multiple choice. So it should be good. And the, the purpose of the quiz is really for our listeners to learn and to understand context around the topics that we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. So the first question, either one of you can answer. All right. You okay. Ready? Okay. So at what university did President JFK give his famous speech where the famous words were uttered? We choose to go to the moon. Was it MIT? Was it Rice, Princeton, or Cornell? Rice. Yes, you got it. Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. So his speech was given on September 12th, 1962 in Houston, Texas. And it was his way, it was his opportunity to basically rally all of the Americans around this idea that we were actually going to go to the moon and to sell the idea to Congress like, hey, this country is built for it. Sure. We got the capacity, the human and the technological capacity. And it's meant to make sure we bring peace and cooperation to the world, even though we have these other folks across the pond who've mm. already, uh, you know, done some amazing things. It's time for this country. So that was that was part of um, JFK's purpose of, of going to Rice University. It was a, it was like a homecoming or like a, a pep rally. Can I give a brief anecdote at this point? Go for it. All right. Um, going back to my dad being an aerospace engineer, he was working on um, space type stuff. Uh, and um, back he w- was working in the 50s and 60s on this. And, you know, Kennedy gave that speech. And I think the community was very inspired by this, but it seemed very far away. You know, something that was, okay, in theory, this is something that was going to happen. And my dad 
was sent out to Florida to start working on some stuff in 1964. Mm. And I remember he said he went to um, Cape Canaveral and he saw this huge building, really tall, which is where the rocket was going to go that was going to take us to the moon. And he looked at that building, you know, something, you know, 50, 60 stories high and looked at his colleague and says, I think we're actually going to try to go to the moon. (laughs) This is someone who's working on space issues, but it just seems so like, okay, that's far enough. But it was really... You know, as someone who's grown up as always having, we've always been to the moon. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind that thinks you know there was a time before. Yes, and what a huge step that was really for humanity. No, I and this is why I had to take a step back with Space Force and like get my mind out of the 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 skepticism because I I thought like this is a bunch of nonsense. But then when I as I mentioned I listened to Kennedy's speech and I read through actually read the transcript, I was like okay maybe this is actually like the beginning this is our beginning of something amazing, right? The same way for your father and for so many of that generation, the idea was like, they were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking, like, what? but why? Um, And so maybe this is like our but why moment where we're just going to sort of set off a whole new era of space exploration and maybe have some sort of fifth element type situation. I don't know, maybe. (laughs) Dare to dream. (laughs) (laughs) All right, second question. What is Europe's version of the GPS global position system. What is Europe's version of the GPS called? Is it GLONASS, G-L-O-N-A-S-S? Is it Gemini? Is it Galileo? Or is it Bidu? That would be Galileo. Okay. The others are Russian, <laughs> Chinese, and not a GPS system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to explain what Galileo is just a little bit for folks? Sure. I think this is actually a great topic because I think we all know that GPS exists. We know that it's a space-based capability, but that's really usually as far as far as we go. Um, and I like to tell a great antidote. So I have um, dogs that we let run in the woods. They're very active. They're German short hair pointers. They have a collar that they wear, and it actually has two GPS systems to make it more accurate. And so the the idea is that all of the countries who have these systems are, are providing this and it allows all of us to use these systems in a way that can reinforce each other. And so we, we like to joke that the Russians know where my dogs are, um, which is obviously not well. at all true. And, and so the Chinese version is Beidou, the, the Russians have their system, and then as you said, the Galileo is the European, version. The European version. There's yeah. a couple of others that are currently um, uh, under development. India is one of those. And, and the basic idea is that if we all have these systems, they reinforce each other mm-hmm. and, and that we can continue to extend their ability. Because there are places where GPS or some of the other systems don't work and you really need that kind of backup the further north you go for instance right um and and so as a a capability that's really beneficial to everyone i mean it's it's your it's everything every app on your phone is going to integrate this your directions and then obviously much more important capabilities like military and communications all rely on these as well yeah thank you for that crystal and and the reason why i chose that was because we're going to talk a little bit later about how countries work together um to make sure that we're not there aren't any issues or disasters or, or anything like that in space here on Earth, but certainly uh, in space. So let's jump into Space Security 101 for people who have no clue, like me, walking into this, what this thing is about and where we're going to rely on Victoria and Crystal to unpack some some information. So uh, the Secure World Foundation has put together a really helpful handbook for new actors, which I thought was like, this is like the Bible for space people. This is great. Um, Can so, we quote you on that one? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Like, do it. It's. I was like, I, as a regular human being, I was like, this is just like cool stuff. Um, so I thought we'd talk through just some of the basic terms in that handbook, but just overall uh, terms that sort of shape and frame this work uh, so that we have an understanding for Space Force and all of the stuff that's in the directive that the president issued. So um, the first, let's just take a step back. We talked about JFK. I think history is really important when we're talking about foreign policy because this stuff doesn't come like 
out of nowhere. You know, for the show, I, I definitely had to like take a step back and just remind myself um, about the space race and what that actually was about. Uh, the space race, you know, between the United States and, and the Soviet at that time. Victoria, how about, can you just walk through just a couple of historical tipping points or events that have shaped this world of space security? Well, I think obviously Sputnik, when the Russians were the first to launch a satellite in space. And that was that was a huge tipping point because it was the first time anyone had done that. It was done between two Cold War superpowers between the United States and Russia. And it established a precedent. Um, The United States decided when the Russians launched Sputnik not to protest. They said, okay, you know, because airplanes, you have to have discussions about overflighted territory. You know, we're not allowed to fly over each other's territory without permission. And the United States could have said, you know, we're not going to allow the Russian satellite to go over us. But the United States decided that we would not protest because we wanted to do that. Mm. They did. We'd be able to do the same. So I think that's a really big deal. Um, um, another major one, I think, um, is that 1967 was the signing of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, the United States, Russia were two of the biggest proponents of this. With the idea that they'd try and set up discussions about how we want to approach space, um, peaceful uses, um, it's a shared environment. The idea that there are certain responsibilities for launching states, there's liability issues and concerns. Um, if there's issues with astronauts, the idea of return, no interference with each, each other country's use of space. And then the big one from a space security perspective is the idea that there um, are no weapons of mass destruction allowed in orbit or on the moon. Um, in this case, I mean, you can describe a weapons of mass destruction in many different ways. Um, given the 1960s context, obviously mm-hmm. they meant nuclear weapons. Uh, it, but that does not, the Outer Space Treaty does not preclude non-nuclear weapons. And so it's just looking at those types of issues uh, really what you want to cover if you're talking about the peaceful security issues. Yeah. So that's uh, those are probably two of the biggest things um, and with the international community coming together to discuss that. And then that set off a series of treaties um, over the next 10 years or so looking at liability, at astronaut return, at registration. But then it really that kind of led to a new era where space is being used by actors um, and we're kind of building off the treaty era. And then I think one of the bigger points, um, the Chinese launched their first astronaut, their um, Taikonaut, in 2003. And that was a really big deal because that was the first time it was not the United States or Russia that launched a human being into space. And that broadened the space race a lot or space age a lot, depending on how you look at it. You know, it became kind of a tripartite, so to speak. And then over the past few years, there's been a huge shift in terms of the commercial sector. You know, I mean... Commercial actors have always been involved in space in that you have your Boeings and Lockheed Martins, which are private companies, selling products to the government. But really and truly, if you want to talk commercial actors, are they, you know, commercial entities able to sell products to non-governmental entities? Are they able to take on jobs that had traditionally been only the, the, the responsibility of governments. Like, for example, you have commercial actors now launching things to the space station, which traditionally had only been government actors. Like what kind of things? Uh, well, you have um, SpaceX launching a rocket to, uh, not a rocket, a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> Vocabulary is important. Yeah. A, a spaceship to the space station carrying supplies. 
And the idea that later on this year, possibly early next year, they're going to be um, able to take human beings. Because right now, um, as Crystal mentioned, uh, NASA stopped flying the space shuttle in 2011. So the way we get people up to the space station is we use the Russians. And trust me, the Russians have increased that price tag over the past couple of years. But then just from the idea, not even just because of that, but the idea that you never want to have a single point of failure. And so it's good to have multiple ways in which to have humans in space. But that's, it's really interesting for me because I've been working this issue for the past few years and just to see a real shift from when you're like, oh, commercial human space flight. Yeah, it's five years out. It's five years out. It's five years out. It's this now year. it's happening. It's happening. It's here. We are at a really exciting and interesting time, even for folks who may not be as interested in space beyond, hey, it's cool. I like it. it this is a really important point that the, the, the actors are shifting. I mean, you mentioned our handbook for new actors in space. And then the reason that our organization put that together is because we looked around and we said, wow, there are all of these new actors. And it, it's it's companies, it's individuals, it's new governments. And now the need isn't to, to necessarily launch an astronaut. Maybe they're launching a small satellite. You know, it's academia. Mm. And so all of these new actors are really contributing to a changing environment. So one of the when you guys say actors, just for people who are not used to the space, we're just saying anybody who or any entity who has the capability of launching stuff. Not even space. launching, just putting things up. Because, putting things up. Yeah, because, you know, the Indians, they, they will launch. They've launched like 104 satellites at one time. And they're from a series of different countries and series of different programs. Oh. You have kids like literally elementary school science projects getting chucked off the space station. You know, as part of the thing, you, Wait, can, put what, together, you can put together a small CubeSat as part of a, an educational program. So universities do it all the time. And as Victoria said, there is a number of elementary students. They put it together. It functions. It beeps. It maybe sends some data back. Maybe it doesn't. Um, it gets put into a larger group. Oh. Of, of of launching small cubes and then it gets thrown into outer space and they can track it and follow it and that is completely possible now and it is becoming more and more common. I think, can I do that? Can you I? could if you really wanted to. <laughs> I mean it's true though. And now would your satellite do a lot of fancy stuff? Probably, Probably not. not. But private actors are creating more and more sophisticated satellite. What used to be the government and a very few select number of companies who put up our communications networks are now becoming so much more diverse. And and the satellites range from really tiny little ones to to obviously very large ones the size of buses. Right. And and that's really only happened in the last five to ten years. Interesting. Right. And I mean, I think just to put it in context... Right now, there are about 2,000, maybe 1,800, depending on how you discuss it, um, 1,800, 2,000 active satellites. If you look at what people have filed with the FCC, if you want to launch a satellite, you have to file with the FCC to get spectrum usage, blah, blah, blah. If you look at plans they have, I mean, there could be anywhere between 10, 15, 20,000 new satellites launched in the next 10 years. Now, obviously, some of these are very ambitious plans of constellations that don't exist yet. Um, a constellation is a group of satellites that are launched roughly about the same time that work together. Thank you for um, explaining that because I was like, does she mean like the sun? Star <laughs> <or what> <laughs> yeah, we're not touching those. Okay. Um, so, but, but either way, even if only a small fraction, let's say only a fifth of those satellites get launched, you know, so I think we're looking at doubling or tripling or, you know, doing a huge number of the amount of active satellites we have currently, which is a game changer. Mm-hmm. It is a game changer because it isn't just... It's not the states that are launching these satellites. It's commercial actors. Right. So, so space is shifting from a domain that is primarily the provenance of countries to the provenance of commercial entities, which is fine. You know, things change, move along, things evolve. But the issue you run into from security issues and stability issues and international relation issues is that the international community is set up to deal with these type of shared environments with nation states talking. Basically, right. the United the Nations. They're used to having countries talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And you see, okay, but now the, the stakeholders are not just nation states. 
they're commercial entities. They're, they're fifth graders. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. So how do we incorporate all these stakeholders in the conversation? And it's really hard because, the you know, the United Nations is set up to deal with other countries. I want to definitely uh, talk about the UN's role here because I think it is quite fascinating. But I want to also go back to the point about the 1800 to 2000 satellites. One of the, the phrases that came across my work was, um, it's in the handbook, <laughs> is, uh, you know, space debris. And and it, and the immediate image that I, I got in my mind is like a landfill. So I used to work at the Environmental Protection Agency, right? And, and landfills are just like, they're landfills and it's, they're not pretty sites and all I can think of was like oh my gosh are we going to turn space like into a landfill of just like dead satellites because <laughs> we're definitely we're definitely debris. not at the wall-e level <laughs> yeah I think of that that picture from wall-e yeah, you yeah. Know, we're definitely we're not at that level but but the movies that you have seen on this topic are, are a good way to visualize in general what we're talking about when we refer to space debris so gravity is one that I always when I try to tell people what it is yeah, I do yeah, yeah. I, I do I refer to that movie because I well I don't well, you can argue the science and certain <laughs> aspects of it as much as you would like um the basic concept is relatively accurate yeah and so space debris can be everything from a dead satellite that's non-functioning um that's hopefully been moved to a graveyard to orbit. It can be pieces of something that's come off, so the space station of other satellites. It can be like rocket if something bl- blew up in space. All of that stuff just kind of sits there in space, right? Right. I mean, the 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 simile I've heard it's like if there had been a battle where the bullets are still rushing around forever and ever. Oh. At, at certain altitudes, I know Chris was talking about. <laughs> at certain altitudes, I mean, the, the Earth's gravitational pull is very strong, and so if you're closer to Earth. The Earth is going to pull it down. Eventually, it's going to burn up in the atmosphere. Right. But at certain altitudes, it's going to be up there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so the, the issue you have about space debris is, again, it's not like you're going to have an environment where you're literally bumping elbows with debris the whole time. But is, it, uh, is an orbit going to be too costly to use because there's too big a risk of actually running into another, another piece of debris? Got it. And there are certain orbits... Um, altitudes uh, that are very useful for very specific things. Mm-hmm. You know, people's. You know, it used to be the idea of big sky. You know, space is huge. We got plenty of things. You know, but but certain things you need to do need to be done at certain orbits, mm. and so it becomes difficult to coordinate. And people always think there's some sort of space traffic control person out there or entity. <laughs> you know, that someone somewhere is looking at a table with you know blips going across and they're like okay you know, we're gonna have something going up here okay coordinate you know we're, we're ready to land nothing like that's happening mm-hmm. um within the united states the faa has to coordinate launches and landings um internationally you have to coordinate um net spectrum well yeah spectrum at the geostationary orbit which is thirty six thousand kilometers other than that there's no one really in charge of figuring out where things go in space you just launch it and use it and hope for the best hope for the best there is, and just to so the, the audience knows, there are there's tracking that occurs. So the United States government, through via the military at the moment, um, does track pieces of debris. I think the figure is larger than a certain ten centimeters. Yeah. Um, and we, we can actually see things. And then there are private organizations that also supplement that data. Okay. So it's not as if we have no concept where anything is. Right. But this is orbital physics. And, you know, it's complicated. And, and so it's not it's not like there's a magic screen somewhere where everything's rushing around. But at the same time, it's not like we have no idea either. Yeah. Right. Talking about the history here, I used to work in nuclear issues. And during the Cold War, I want to say the United States and Russia had between them a little over a thousand nuclear weapons tests. During the Cold War, the United States and Russia had um, anti-satellite tests, or ASAT tests, where they deliberately tried to destroy satellites in orbit. Roughly between the two of them, I want to say it was about two dozen. There, so, and the reason why is that space tests, um, the, those sort of tests, were seen as so incredibly destabilizing that you did not want to establish a precedent for that sort of behavior. Um, largely because both the United States and Russia use satellites to keep an eye on things. 
Mm. And during the Cold War, you know, we have these satellites, well, we still do actually, um, have these satellites that monitor whether there's going to be nuclear launches. Mm. And the concern is if those satellites, those eyes in the sky are taken out, um, then the other side would have to assume the worst, the worst. and respond accordingly. Yeah. So even to this day, um, the U.S. military is extremely sensitive to anything that would interfere potentially yeah. um, with those satellites. The, that That's also part of the Space Force question that I want to mm-hmm. talk about, which is the flip of this, which is, you know, you, you called it the anti-satellite. Anti-satellite. Weapons or sure, yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the broader term now. I mean, it changes, right? Because yeah. it evolves. Big picture, talk counter space capabilities. Yes, but because that can be done a, a bunch of different ways. Um, people always think, okay, space weapons. They think. You know, Star Wars, that sort of thing. The fifth element gun. Exactly. <laughs> Starship Troopers. Starship, Starship Troopers, troopers yes. yeah. And none of that's actually happening. I mean, when 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 we talk about counter space capabilities, I'm in particular am looking at, okay, what what is interfering with the space asset? And what is interfering with the space asset's ability to communicate with Earth? I mean, because, you know, the assets in themselves, and I use asset as a broad term for any kind of satellite or, okay. you know, capability in orbit, they're just, they're just satellites. Yeah. You know, the thing is, okay, can they actually get me the information and knowledge that I need? Can they send the information and knowledge I need to go out? Um, And so anything that can interfere with that, people always look at, you know, the kinetic sort of response. Okay, if you're going to have something launching and hitting a satellite and destroying it directly, yeah, obviously an anti-satellite weapon can be very threatening. But there are other ways in which you can destabilize um, the regime. You can have someone get their satellite very close to another satellite. No, we're just here. We're just <laughs> we're just, just hanging we're just out, hanging out, just listening. As you like, keep one eye open. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, which is very concerning because, as Crystal mentioned, we do have some situational awareness. It's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, we think we know where something is, but maybe we're off. And so that always makes satellite operators very nervous when something gets close to one of their satellites. Yeah. So you can have a, it's called rendezvous and proximity operations. You can have something get close. You can have something just interfere in terms of radio frequency right. interference or jamming. Let's bring it back to Earth for just a second and talk about the space for humankind, which I think is a, a great phrase that you use, Crystal. And, and you know, there's the, the military aspect of making sure that we know what's happening in space and our military has the capability to respond or to to do whatever. Um, But there are some like basic day-to-day luxuries that we enjoy as human beings because we are in space. Crystal, like just talk to us just besides the GPS, which we all know are aware of, what are some other benefits or uh, utilities of space technology that we may not even know about? Yeah, so absolutely. With GPS, I would point out something interesting. One question that I, I enjoy I enjoy getting sometimes is, why does my GPS on my phone work even when my phone data doesn't work? And the answer is because it's a different signal. It's, it's a different, you know, it's, it's not the same way that you get your cell phone data. And so I think people do understand that GPS is space-based, but I think that the sheer reliance that we have on it mm. is maybe still not completely fully understood. Um, as you mentioned, uh, weather data is also really, really important. Um, everything that feeds into your phone as a human being, a lot of that's being that that, that data is coming from weather satellites. Got it. Um, research purposes, so understanding our changing planet. Um, a lot of that research is done via satellite data. Everything from precision agriculture, which is being, you know, we're using those kinds of of, of that kind of data and information. Which precision agriculture? So the idea that instead of just okay, I think I'm going to go plant my crops over here, and I'm going to go plant my crops over here, based on, you know, you can actually, especially larger corporations that are doing farming, can actually track exactly where everything going via transponders that are in the the, the equipment oh. that's used. Um, if you've heard of Internet of Things, mm-hmm. a of lot course, of that, that. Yeah. a lot of that is facilitated by space-based 
data and information and Got satellites. And it. so even though it might not seem like an everyday thing for most people, now that we're looking at, you know, Walmart parking lot measurements as a way of understanding marketing and understanding, you know, are we economic recovery? Mm. You know, that kind of data feeds into a lot of different places that I think we don't necessarily think Would about. Would not have thought about Walmart being in this space at all. Oil well tracking is really interesting right now, too. So trying to estimate um, how much oil is being produced around the world using space-based imagery. And so the, that kind of technology is, is really taking off right now. And, and I think we're really only beginning to see the ways in which we're going to be able to analyze what's happening on Earth yeah. using space imagery. So this is, before we jump into Space Force, I think this is a good place to sort of talk about the rules of the road of, in, of engaging in this, in this space. And we know that there are, as you mentioned, a lot of actors, people, entities coming into this this space, for lack of a better term, uh, and, and using it for multiple purposes. And and uh, Victoria, you talked about sort of the treaties um, and the, the kickoff of many of the agreements that the United States had with other countries. I'm assuming in an effort to make sure that everybody understands, like, this is how we want to operate in this space. This is These are the rules of the world. And we talked about this, my very first episode about foreign policy and just how important it is that people who countries government leaders, whoever, understand just like basic tenets that we want to operate in in war, on peacetime, human rights issues, so on and so forth. What are the rules of the road for space? Or what are the, the institutions that set up these rules so that we're not doing things that we shouldn't be doing in space? Generally speaking, the idea that is that you should send something up that is large enough to be tracked. Um, some companies have tried to do smaller, and they've been slapped down for that. The, as Crystal says, anything that's 10 centimeters in diameter um, can be easily tracked. Other than that, it's kind of difficult. Um, so that's one idea. The idea is that also your satellite should not be eternal. Um, if you're launching a satellite, it needs to have an endpoint. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can't just throw it out there like, hey, you can't, see you never. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right now, they have a debris mitigation guidelines that um, were put together by 14 space agencies and then approved by the United Nations. The idea that, okay, there's a, a death for your satellite. <laughs> yeah. After 25 years, you need to get rid of it or put it up in an orbit, like, past where it's going to be an issue to any other, um, other actor. Okay. Um, you're not supposed to get close to other satellites. Generally speaking, prior permission. Do you like send a message? Like, does like the EU send a message to the United States? Like, hey guys, so we're about to do this satellite, and you're supposed to notification if you're going to be doing anything on orbit that can affect other countries. Now, that does not or other actors. That does not always happen. Okay. And the U.S. military actually has a really strong space surveillance network, as Crystal said, and so they'll send these what they call conjunction approaches. The idea that there is something that could potentially get close to your satellite. FYI, you decide what you want to do about it. We're just saying it could <laughs> we're happen. Just saying, we're just saying. Yeah. Okay. So which is really good. I think it's, it's part of a re recognition that there is um, a public good sure. responsibility sure. here. And I would say, so just to kind of take a step back, so Victoria kind of highlighted some of the really useful guidelines that exist and then that help us maintain the space environment. But just so that your your listeners understand, each nation state has essentially, via the treaties that exist, assumed responsibility for the space activities that originate from there. And so in some ways, it's country by country. Countries have very different rules governing things. But all of those rules tend to roll up into these internationally agreed upon guidelines. Got it. Um, we were talking about space debris earlier, and there's a lot of companies who are interested, um, not a lot, but a few who are interested in removing and space clean up. debris. I was and clean up, yeah, yeah, and clean yeah. up and removing space debris. And so that's an area where our organization and many others have said, hey, we don't have a lot of guidelines about yeah, how that yeah, would work yeah. and what needs to happen. So it's an evolving space. But yeah. the idea is that nation states working together with private entities come up with this, much like they do in any other organization, For any sure, other business any that exists. Yeah. And so 
it, there's not one place where you go and you can read everything that are the rules in space. <laughs> no handbook. No, no handbook. Our handbook is probably the closest in some ways. It's it important. Would, it would yeah. certainly tell you if you were thinking about launching a satellite, hey, we won't tell you what the process in your country for getting a license is. Right. But we will tell you the overall process right. that you need to consider. Uh, but the thing I get a lot when I talk about norms of behavior, particularly from a security standpoint, is people say, well, what if people, have, you know, what if they don't participate? Yeah. What if they don't agree? The, the idea about norms of behavior is that the international community has bought in because it's to their benefit to participate. It's to national security reason benefit to participate. It, we're not just doing this because it's out of the goodness of our hearts. And we feel like, you know, we want to be inclusive. It's because everyone has bought in. They've been part of this discussion. That's why it's so important to have all the stakeholders involved because then you get their buy-in and agreement to participate. And then you do have, as Crystal said, issue areas as it's an evolving environment where you're not really sure what the international law says or mm. what the what the agreed-upon interpretation is, let's put it that way. And so there are two different groups that are looking at what they call laws of armed conflict for space. Oh. And they're trying to come up with manuals. So you can say, okay, what is agreed upon red line? You know, at what point are you being threatening? At what point does international law step in and interpret this? And so, um, Secure World is involved. His experts involved in both those conversations with the idea that they're trying to put together kind of a what what the laws of armed conflict say. And yeah. it doesn't sound like you know, people hear that and they think, oh, you're trying to give a benediction to space <laughs> war. No, but you're trying to figure out, you know, how the international community can discuss these issues. Yeah. There are these manuals for. For terrestrial, you know, concerns, or is these manuals for air, for sea, why not space? Oh, and I would also always add that I, I think it can it can all sound very scary, and in some ways it is. But most actors understand the importance of this to public safety, right? And and so there isn't sort of this blase, laissez faire attitude of ah, eh, anything's fine. The other good news about space is it is hard to hide things in space, and so at any point we may not be able to point in direction and be like, there's a. 10 centimeter satellite right there. But at the same time, it's not super easy to hide what you're doing. Anyone can look up with a big telescope or, you know, with their eyes. I mean, <laughs> right, it sounds right. silly, but I think it's a really important point to remember. Yeah. That while space is really big, at the same time, it's kind of small, too. Yeah. And so a lot of times we, we say bad actors very loosely. Yes, they can get away with things, but they also don't get away with things. Yeah. You know, there, there's an example recently of a company that um, didn't get the correct license from the FCC, launched anyway, <gasps> and uh, very small satellites. And it didn't, you know, it, it the everyone, you know, other companies, other governments, everyone right. said, hey, you guys, we can't do you that. Can't That's do that. not okay. Let's yeah, yeah, fix yeah. what caused this problem. Right. And so it wasn't as if someone, there's some entity out there that, you know, came and, you know, was in charge of all this. And yet the different actors got together and they said, okay, you, the United States, the company's based here, you get, you know, there's a fine. But also other companies said, hey, that's not okay. And the company said, yep, we made a mistake. We're going to fix this. And, and so the system worked, yeah. even though it's not a... As a, what we know, traditionally think of as a, a functioning legal system, yeah, the yeah, way yeah. if you run a traffic stop, right? There still are influences that happen that contribute to this long-term right. goal of realizing, hey, we all know this is important, and right. we need to figure it out. So let's talk about Space Force. <laughs> so uh, in February, as I mentioned, President uh, Trump issued the Space Policy Directive for the establishment United States Space Force. It's supposed to cost um, anywhere from $1.3 to $2.7 billion over the next five years and require around 15,000 people to run. Victoria and Crystal uh, are going to just help us dissect some of the language and concepts in here uh, to help us just understand what 
this is about? Is it relevant? We had a lot of had a lot of listeners send me questions um, because they're just like, is this necessary? So one one listener had this to say, he said, you know, why? What is the purpose of a space force? We've been to the moon. Is it to protect what national interest? Um, it just seems utterly unneeded and a diversion. Now, I will say that just given the political climate, I can understand why the listener would be like, this is just another way to distract us from the other things. But again, I had to take a step back myself and say, okay, hey, obviously this concept didn't just like come out of nowhere. There's there's some legitimacy around considering an entity around around space. So um, Victoria, Crystal, just tell us just high level what exactly Space Force is about. Largely is about who in the United States military is in charge of space, which sounds like that's something we should have sorted out because we've been in space for six plus decades now. Actually, it's not. The Air Force does a lot on space, but there are actually, I think, 60 government entities that have a say in space. And so the idea is, how do you coordinate what the national security needs are for space? Um, This is a conversation that's been going on for decades now. and and so the idea, this is not a new thing. I think a lot of people see the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration and think it's part of a Make America Great right, Again. Right, right. Obviously, that does temper mm-hmm. what they're doing, but it's just part of a discussion that's going on for a long time now. And then also looking at, you know, the space domain has changed. There are, I mean, it's always been a, a point of a rivalry, I should say. But there are some concerns by the national security community that our space assets could be interfered with by Russia or China, let's be blunt. And so the idea is, okay, does the current setup actually of our military space um, setting, does it actually work? Is it providing resiliency? Is it, requ- is it providing utility over the long term? Um, and so the idea of the Space Force is that you would have an entity that would largely be in charge of this conversation and be able to coordinate the responses. Um, Air Force is not happy about this. Um, you know, um, they said, hey, we've been doing it. We'll, we'll, we'll coordinate. We'll put another four-star in charge. It's okay. We got this, guys. Um, but I think over the past year, once President Trump announced randomly last June when he was discussing another presidential directive yes. about stra- space traffic management, he says, oh, and we're going to do a space force. Yeah. Everyone's like, wait, what? Hey, what? what now? Um, so they had to get on board. Well, and, getting, and saying that, so the, the, this concept that Victoria is referring to is not a new one. Yeah. And, and so you almost have to separate out the theatrics around mm-hmm. the President Trump and his, his choice of what Words, he calls it and, yeah. and, and how it's interpreted. And then what the space community has been talking about since the early 2000s. Interesting. Um, you know, this is, as, oh, I think Donald Rumsfeld had a report back in 2000, 2001 that raised this exact point that Victoria just explained, that we need to be coordinating our military capabilities in a way that addresses the changing environment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, um, was it a couple years ago, there was also a proposal to, you know, reinvigorate this debate and say, hey, we need a space core. So prior to this particular uh, announcement, it was almost more generally referred to as a space core, a, a space place core. in the military where you're taking all of these capabilities and, and talking about them and managing them and coordinating them really, really well, because lots of different branches of the military manage things that relate to space and then use space data and space information themselves. Yeah. And so are we doing that in a way that from a geopolitical standpoint right. is effective and valuable and, and completely integrated? You you said something earlier, that which is, which is correct, which is words matter. And I think space core is certainly a more peaceful sounding term than space force and putting the space force under the military, right? Which is one of my questions and and certainly a question that a listener has asked, which is one, why isn't this under NASA? 
And if we had put it under NASA, couldn't it also be the coordinating entity, right? By putting it under the military, are we signaling to China and Russia? Because that's really who the main concerns are. Are we signaling to these adversaries that we're preparing for war, right? I think people don't recognize space has always been a military Mm. relationship. The U.S. military has been involved from the very get-go. Um, NASA was established specifically as a civilian entity. It has had an uneasy relationship with the military aspects of space. And so there is, you know, I think no reason to put this under NASA because NASA does its own thing. In terms of what the Space Force is, what, the way they're looking at it, it's basically going to be like the Marine Corps. And that the Marine Corps is its own entity underneath the Department of Navy. And so the Space uh, Force is going to be its own entity under the Air Force. Um, so I think that's really um, th- where the discussion point is for that. It's also not about training soldiers. Yeah. And, and so I think when you hear the words force, you immediately think weapons and yeah, guns and yeah, structured yeah. troopers that we for talked sure. earlier. And it's under the military and, and branch. And I can't say what's in <laughs> President Trump's mind um, when he's the Space Force, but I can speak to what, his, what, what the other um, officials in his administration have said about this and have been saying for a long time mm. again, is that this is more about radio frequency jamming and anti-satellite capabilities than it is about soldiers and weapons in space. Okay. And uh, But I agree with you, the words matter. And so I think it is kind of true that we're signaling something that maybe we don't necessarily mean or yeah. that is certainly confusing. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that the basic concept isn't important. And so the whole idea of putting it under NASA, it just doesn't make sense. Like okay. there's, the, the problem isn't that NASA needs to do something. It, okay. It's that we need to coordinate things that already are happening, happening and exist and need to be looked at. And those capabilities currently rest with the military. And, and NASA, does, NASA is, is, is primarily a research and exploration Got organization. It. It, it would not be the correct place to be examining China's anti-satellite capabilities and concluding whether we need to change our... Like that right. they just don't have that role that right. wouldn't be appropriate. But Certainly, although I wasn't aware that um, the military space folks and the NASA folks, you know, have some tension, which I could actually understand. But in this sort of space force, this doesn't mean that the space force wouldn't work with NASA to share information, to discuss, you know, hey, did you guys see what we saw? Or I heard you guys are doing that. No, you're shaking your head. No, no. um, That little interagency conversation doesn't really happen. I mean, because I mean, it's almost as I would say almost a separation of church and state. In terms of um, NASA does civilian space, i.e. non-security space, and the military does security space. So one of the other questions we, we got is, where will the talent pool for uh, the new Space Force come from? Will it be primarily contractors? Will it be civilians? Transfers from, you know, other parts of of the military, where are these, where is the talent going to come from? That was one of the big reasons where proponents were supporting a space force and that the Air Force would have someone come in, work on space issues, and then two to three years later circulate out to go do something else. And there wasn't really a space career path where you could become an expert in space. And so the idea of having a space force is that you would get the talent pool together and they would have places where they could go, where they could, you know, work their way up the chain. I think currently they're going to be pulling a lot of stuff, a lot of people from the Air Force, that's the current thinking, and then maybe hiring some outside experts, but um, it's still very early in the stages. The folks that would eventually make up any kind of Space Force, however they end up doing it, most of the information that would be needed, it's it's engineers. Right. It's it's computer experts. It's it's Right. Like you said, we're not like sending, we're not building fighters, space fighters yet. Crystal, you have some interesting work uh, around international development. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious if if you could uh, just explain to us where international development work and space work intersect. Those two aren't Sure. Things that I would normally put together 
and you work in that or have touched that. But True. I mean, to a certain extent, they came together because as I, I was interested in policy and international stuff, and that's where I ended up. But I would say that in, in our current world, we're actually seeing a huge collision. Um, so if you're familiar with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, mm-hmm. which were established in 2015, you know, a set of 17 um, objectives that all the nations that sign on, which is the vast majority of nations, have said, hey, we're going to promote these and we're going to work to do these things. And it's, it's stuff that you would expect. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. Nobody yeah, yeah. found new problems when they established <laughs> yeah. these goals. But they put them into categories and they said, we want to work on poverty. We mm-hmm. want to work on, on life on land, on yeah. gender and all these things. And so there's a real interest in what kind of data and information do we need, one, to track our progress on these goals, but also to make progress on them. And space, whether it's geospatial technologies, so imagery or communications or, as you said earlier, GPS and weather information, those are all super important for any kind of work under those. So you're seeing an interest overall international development in data and information and technology. And space is a particularly important role to play there. Mm -hmm. We see it everything from, you know, refugee tracking Mm. to um, one really interesting study was um, understanding the effects of the the war in Syria using nightlights. And and huh. the the decree you can actually track how bad the war was by how much electricity it was functioning. Wow. I think there's a 2015 2016 oh, article wow. that's fascinating to just see the percentage decrease in light electricity at night. Well, yeah, because there's no people or it's been things that have been destroyed because exactly. of war. And so I, I hesitate to always say objective and unbiased data because, of course, it's not quite that simple. I mean, yeah. Some places are cloudy, so you have terrible data from there. Mm. But I will say that space is particularly important for those kinds of conversations because it provides a relatively yeah. unbiased, objective yeah, form yeah, of yeah. information to be able to make decisions. Yeah, you can't like Photoshop geospatial data data, can you? Like- I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> not, yet, not in the <laughs> <laughs> this this leads to you know uh, the the towards the end of the conversation, but certainly you you talk about international development work, and you're talking about some of the ways that we do use this information for for the good. And I feel like when I when I read the directive, and you know thinking again in context of this administration, it's really easy for us to sort of think that we're gearing up for to, for a fight, and that we're just you know looking at China and Russia in terms of their adversarial capabilities, and they want to kill us all, and they want to steal our information, and, and which I'm sure it has some validity, but there there are there is common ground, it sounds like, between nations when it comes to space. Can you can you just talk so space diplomacy is like the the, the nice word, right? It's mm-hmm. the good word about um, how countries are working together. But if you could just give the listeners just an example of modern day cool cooperative ways we're working with each other and playing nice with, with one another so that we don't feel like space force is all about annihilating one another in space. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are all, all, all sorts of discussions going on about security and stability in space. And um, there's discussions going on right now in Geneva with the idea that there's a group of governmental experts coming on. Geneva is where the Conference of Disarmament is, and that's the branch of the U- United Nations that focuses on security issues. Space is one of the issues in theory they're supposed to focus on. And so you have a group there uh, from 25 different countries, including the United States, Russia, China, talking about how do we prevent an arms race in outer space? How do we do transparency? How can we build confidence in what people are doing and ensure that space is being used for peaceful purposes or at least not at for antagonistic purposes? So you have those conversations going on there. As I think a lot of people look at what Russia is doing in space or if the Chinese are increasing their space capabilities as a threat, like 
for some reason, it's geared directly at the United States. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're sending their own messages, such as they are. But, you know, I've always said, this goes back to my degree as a political science major, space is not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Just because China is doing more in space does not mean that it's being, we are getting less out of it. Yes. I always argue, you know, the more actors are involved in space, I think the better it is. Because then they have a stronger incentive to at to least right. approach space in a cooperative, responsible manner. Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but at least you have that yeah. common thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would also cite domestically. So I, I think there's um, space is actually an issue where it's not terribly partisan. Now, people have their geographic concerns, their political concerns, sure. and, and certainly uh, with this administration, it can feel a little bit antagonistic. But the truth is, on a day-to-day basis, this is not a terribly divisive issue. People might disagree on what we're trying to do or what we want to fund, or there are parts of it that can be divisive. But overall, it's a place where bipartisanship mm-hmm. is not at all uncommon. Right, right. And then just closer to home again, um, there is, in the middle of October, there's going to be the International Astronautical Congress, which is held in a different country every year. This year, 50 years after um, man stepped on the moon, yeah. it's going to be here in D.C. All so right it's going to be the convention center. And I think they are going to have one public day. I'm happy <gasps> where people can come in and walk around and what in the world get will be swag there? and see rockets and <laughs> space agencies from all over the world. So that's kind of a fun way to do that. But like I said, so th- th- these conversations are happening, Yeah, you know, from a scientific standpoint, from a security standpoint. So it's not all antagonistic. Yeah. And this is important to remember, remember again when we're reading things and we're hearing mm-hmm. these phrases. Um, and Crystal, thank you for schooling us. I didn't realize that Rumsfeld had talked about this in 2001 or 2000. Like this is a conversation that's been happening for a long time. Thank you all. It eased my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like um, I feel a little better about Space Force. Again, as a regular citizen, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know fully. The experts don't know either. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) maybe we should have a public town hall about Space Force. (laughs) Um, But but, uh, I certainly feel better. I hope our listeners feel better about um, just what this Space Force is, is about. And maybe there's even a career opportunity for you if you're interested in space, you could sign up for Space Force. Or, But ladies, thank you so much for this explanation. I know there's a lot that we could cover. Um, and certainly, um, I will be following your work and following this conversation because uh, it is it is quite fascinating. And I think we're we're at the, the start of something really special, I think, with this with this Space Force despite, again, the, the rhetoric and some of the things we hear, I do think that it's it's something that in maybe 50 years we'll be telling our grandkids, our great-grandkids, like, I was there when. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in what we do with this show at the end is to talk about a song that keeps us in a good mood when things in national security or foreign policy or just generally in the world seem really crappy. So why don't you both tell me, Crystal, tell us what was the song uh, that you both chose as your theme song for, for this episode? I think Victoria Actually, has a stronger connection. Oh, Victoria. Yeah. Okay, Victoria. I, I bullied Crystal into accepting this song. <laughs> no, it's adorable. <laughs> What's um, the song, Victoria? The song is by a group called The Church. Uh, it's called Under the Milky Way Tonight. Picked it just because it was a little bit of a space thing, haha. But you know, you really, you just don't get enough solos of bagpipes, and there's a really strong bagpipe solo halfway through this. And if you ever seen the movie Donnie Darko, it has a pivotal role in some okay. of the stuff. So it dates back to the 1980s. Yeah, it's a great song. It is definitely an 80s song. I was listening to it, and I was yeah. like, "This is so 80s. This is so 80s." I think it's a fantastic song. Thank you all again, ladies.
ladies. Thank you all for listening uh, to What in the World. You can catch us online at whatintheworldpodcast.com. Of course, I am on all the social media channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can email us your thoughts and your questions on what you've heard uh, from Crystal and Victoria at whatintheworldpod2017 at gmail.com. Uh, tell us, tell me what you think. Tell me, tell me how you feel. Hopefully you feel, you know, again at ease like I do. Um, but thank you for listening and thank you both again for sharing your time with me and for breaking down Space Force. Thank you for having us. Yeah.